This is the Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of the Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. Have you ever been hurt by someone? Have you ever thought what that person did was so bad that you wish great pain and suffering on them? That you could never forget and certainly never would forgive them? Maybe the experience wasn't that extreme that you had, but you still hold a grudge or ill will towards another person that harmed you. The truth that we sometimes forget is that when we hold on to those kind of thoughts or wishes or feelings, that it's only us that is affected. It's like the adage that holding on to anger towards someone is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. We are the ones suffering when we hold on to negative emotions. So if we have the ability to hold on to those hurtful experiences, often years afterwards, then we must also have the capacity within us to let them go. However, as we know, that is often easier said than done. Sometimes we get so close to our own situation, we buy into our own version of events, we just can't step back and get perspective on alternative ways to handle it. Sometimes we need to look to another example to show us the way. And sometimes we come across such an extreme example, we realize our situation pales in comparison. And this new example teaches us a whole new paradigm for dealing with difficulties, drama, trauma, and tragedy. Today, I'm honored to bring you an extreme example, an extreme example in the form of Andrew O'Brien. Andrew shares his incredible, actually his unfathomable and unimaginable story of a life of drama and trauma and how he has finally learned to free himself of the past. I will let Andrew provide the details, and in fact, I want to give you, the listener, a heads up. In the first few minutes of this conversation, Andrew gives a brief history of his life up until 22 years old. He goes fairly quickly, but you need to listen. Everything he says is true, even though it's unbelievable. From growing up in an environment of prostitution, going off to war in the Middle East and attempting suicide, and if that wasn't enough, his mom became a national headline just a few years ago and was featured on popular U.S. TV shows of 48 Hours and 2020 with the nickname of the Black Widow of Texas when she murdered Andrew's stepfather and tried to frame his brother. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Through all that, Andrew has demonstrated immense inner strength and learned to forgive. His message is as powerful as it is clear. And for you, it doesn't matter if you've had a broken bone come from a broken home, or a victim of a broken promise, or just a broken heart. Or even if it was a more serious trauma or life-altering crime that affected you. This episode is one you probably need to listen to a couple of times. There is much wisdom in Andrew's advice and in Andrew's experience. And I hope his story makes you reflect on your own experience with hurt and with forgiveness. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Andrew O'Brien. With no pun intended, Andrew is definitely a guy who walks the walk. For a man in his early 30s, he's already lived a few lifetimes worth of tragedies, trauma, absolute unfathomable experiences, and redemption. He has learned that everything happens for a reason and that hard times don't have to define you. Last week, Andrew walked nearly 100 miles from his hometown in Texas to visit his mother in jail who was serving 60 years for famously murdering his stepfather. Walking in the intense Texas summer heat over five days may have broken him physically, but it freed him mentally. 
And while this incredible journey may have closed one chapter, it perhaps begins a new one. Andrew is on a mission to help those wanting to learn to forgive their past in order to create a better future. Andrew, it's an absolute honor to have you here. Welcome to The Ignition Show. Hey, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Great. And I, I have to ask, after walking out 100 miles in, in heat in the summertime, how are your feet and legs recovering? <laughs> so I, I have a blister. Two of my blisters are already, they drained themselves and they're fine. I got one more still working on it. Um, still having to put bandages on it so that I don't want it to pop. And then um, my ankle, I, this is my first day of walking without uh, eighth bandage wrapped around my left ankle because it was extremely swollen. So right. it's slowly getting better. It's good, good to know you're on the, on the road to recovery. And after spending, I guess it was five days on a completely different road, walking 100 miles to visit your mom in prison. Can you just maybe, we're going to get into that part, but I'd love for you just to set the, set the story, set the context for why did you walk 100 miles to forgive your mother? What's the backstory that set, set you up for that journey? Yeah, so I'll give a brief overview and we can dive in wherever you feel like diving in. But sure. uh, I was born and raised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, and I experienced four major hurdles in my life before the age of 23. And those four hurdles were prostitution, war, suicide, and murder. And prostitution was my mom was a stripper and a prostitute, and she brought a lot of men in and out of our lives. And we experienced a lot of trauma from our childhood, uh, constantly dragging us around, different men in and out of our lives. It, it was, you know, sexual things that went on. And it, she was not, definitely didn't receive the Mother of the Year award. And, um, to as I got older, I wanted to escape my childhood, escape my surroundings, get to a better place. So I joined the army. Uh, joined the army in 2007, deployed to Iraq from 2008 to 2009, and then uh, so that was my experience with war. And then after I came home from war, about a year later, while I was still in the army, I actually attempted to take my own life, um, and I tried to take to do that with over 120 pills in less than two minutes. And luckily, I survived that. But the biggest thing I always tell people when they ask about my suicide attempt, it had nothing to do with combat. Being in Iraq was the happiest time of my life because it was the first time in my life that I felt like I had family and like I had purpose. So I didn't experience war like many other people do. Uh, by the time I got there, it was pretty easy, pretty laid back. There were still some experiences, but it wasn't like what you see in the movies. Um, and then after that, my suicide attempt, I survived it. I ended up getting out of the army at my normal contract and date. And then about 10 months after I got out of the army, my mom murdered her husband, shot him point blank in the head while he was sleeping. I wasn't in town for that. I lived in Chicago when that happened. I came back to Dallas Fort Worth to um, try to take care of her because she said someone had broken into the house and shot Greg and hurt her. Um, then we found out, you know, as I was cleaning up Greg's remains out of the carpet, she had asked me to help frame someone else, his ex-wife for the murder, which I obviously didn't do. Um, and I moved away and I wasn't going to say anything to the police until she started trying to convince people that my brother did it. And once she started doing that, that's when I went to the police, told them what she had asked me to do. I ended up testifying against her in court and she was sentenced to 60 years in prison. And these were just four of the experiences throughout my life that led into my journey. Wow. Wow. That is, uh, 
words, I, I'm at a little bit of a loss for words um, for knowing where, where to even take this conversation. And, and um, kudos to you for your vulnerability and your openness in, in talking about this, because I know that all those things that you've been through and now you're on a path to really helping other people with their tragedies and traumas. I guess, I guess one thing I'd love to start with, since you, you explained a little bit about that and that you know, your attempt of taking your own life wasn't about your time in war, but it was a series of events. What did you think when you, when you woke up from that and you realized it didn't work, that you were still alive? What was your first thoughts then? My first thought was happiness. Um, I, I was only 22 when I attempted to take my own life. So I was still extremely young and it was a last minute decision based off of emotions, uh, temporary emotions. And before I blacked out, I had actually called 911 and asked for help because I realized I made a mistake. Uh, so when I woke up, I woke up with all these machines attached to me. Uh, they had, you know, pumped my stomach full of coal. So coal was still coming out of me. I had a catheter in me. It was my first time to ever experience something like that in the hospital. I'd never been hospitalized before. Um, and so when I woke up, I had this newfound appreciation for, for life. And what specifically gave you that newfound appreciation, do you think? Was it, was there anything particular about that situation? Was, was there a thought or was it just a, just a new sense of clarity? It's just a new sense of clarity. It was the fact that I could breathe, that, you know, my eyes were open. I just realized in, in that moment that this, this life is so short and I almost made it even shorter and I had to decide to take over my own life instead of allowing my past to continue to haunt me. Mm. Now that you're, you're, is it, you're 31 years old now? Yeah. Yeah. So you said a lot of those four major, uh, four major events and situations, uh, prostitution, war, suicide, murder all happened before you were 22. I don't know. That probably still seems like it's, um, uh, just yesterday, all that stuff happened. But now that you're, you are 31, and when you look back at that, when you look at that, back, back at that with your 31-year-old eyes, what perspective do you have on how you were able to, maybe you and your brothers, brother were able to just get through that? You know, when I look back at it, we the way we were able to get through it was not not in a positive way, right? Obviously, we survived. We lived. Um, but surviving is not the same as thriving, right? And what we realized is we became survivors and the people that we surrounded ourselves with were survivors because when you're raised in that kind of lifestyle, it's not like you grow up around other kids that aren't in that same lifestyle. All of our friends grew up in, you know, with a rough life too. So we, the way we survived it is we would always run away from our problems, whether it was running away from our house, um, you know, joining the army, I didn't do it for patriotic reasons. I did it to run away. Um, in the path that I was on as a teenager, uh, I was going to end up dead anyways. And I actually, when I joined the army, I thought to myself, at least if I die this way, I'll die an honorable death instead of with the life that I was leading. I was on drugs, um, you know, hardcore drugs. I was addicted to meth from the age of 15 to 17 and at the age of 19, uh, before I joined the army, I had started messing with meth again. And when I started messing with meth again is when I realized I need to, you know, join the army or I'm just going to go down an even worse path than I went through last time. Yeah, it's so true that you know, even people who don't go through the, the extreme situations you've been through that 
one of the, one of the coping me- mechanisms we adopt and adapt to is is escape, and we will go to almost anything that takes us away from that that challenge and that suffering. And you went you went to the army, and you described that as the best time of your life. And you know, it's not like the movies. And tell us a little bit more about maybe again with the perspective of your thirty one year old eyes. What did that What did that time really do for you? What was it about that that made it so perhaps special? I don't know if that's the right word, but special or meaningful for you? You know, my entire life I was told I was never going to amount to anything, and I believed it. I mean, what most kids think about when they get older is what they want to be when they grow up. By the time I got to high school, I told everybody I was just going to be a truck driver. And like that was that was my life goal because I was always told nothing else is realistic. I could never be anything else. And the funny thing is, is I did become a truck driver. I was a truck driver in the army. Um, but whenever I got in and went to Iraq, I drove a truck for the first three months, and then the last nine months, I was I was a lead gunner. So I sat up on the on the gun truck and provided security for my company. And the reason it was the best time of my life is because it was the first time in my life that I felt purpose, that I had meaning, that I felt like I was succeeding at something. Um, I wasn't a dumb kid in school. I just never liked school. Uh, so whenever I went there and I had such a response, such a high responsibility, such I had the most important role out of the entire convoy. And it made me feel good that they trusted me with their life because no one had ever trusted me with anything. Wow. When you um, when you think about that time in the, in the military, I know there was one particular situation where uh, you saw some things that you said you can't unsee, and and how was that? Um, tell us a bit, a bit about that experience as much as you'd like to, and how is that positively helping you now? Yeah, you know, whenever I was in there, there's again not much happened out there, um, but there was a moment where there was a truck that. Um, that exploded it wasn't our truck it was uh, a different unit but they brought their trucks back to our hangar and our leadership had covered up the truck with the tarp and told us not to look inside of it but it was getting close to the end of the deployment and what I realized is that it just war didn't seem didn't feel real like because I hadn't experienced anything I I had had an ID blow up behind me one time I had a couple of bullets fly by me a couple times but nothing Dream. I was never in any firefights, anything like that. I was not infantry. I was not anything special. Um, I was just a support unit. But my job as a lead gunner was to make sure that I find the bombs before they blow up on us. And as it's getting closer to the end of deployment, the enemy knows when we're about to transfer, when we're about to, when one unit's leaving to, and another one's coming in to replace them. And they start getting, they start getting heavier in their attacks at that moment because they know when that happens. And they know that the new unit doesn't know what's going on. And the old unit is just thinking about going home. So it's when we start to almost become more complacent. So at that moment, I decided, well, I don't want to become complacent. I need to make this real in my head because I haven't really seen real combat. I need to know what will happen if I don't see that IED before we hit it. And so I looked inside of the vehicle. And that was a mistake that I made. It definitely made me more cautious and made me more aware of my surroundings but i definitely don't think i should have ever looked inside of that vehicle but again the majority of my trauma isn't from the military the the majority of my trauma 
I say that I've been in war since I was born. So mm. being in war is something that's normal to me. The majority of my trauma comes from my childhood. And to, to, give, to give us uh, give the listener some context of there, can you tell us a little bit more uh, about the war you experienced as a child, and and again from your from the lens of your thirty one year old self, um, what what do you gain when you reflect back on those memories? You know, when I look back, I, the first thing I feel is pride, hmm. and the reason I feel pride is that according to statistics. I should either be in prison or a rapist based on the life that I lived because the life that I lived involved a lot of sexually sexual acts, not towards me, but I watched my mom do a lot of sexual acts um, for money. We lived in various places, motel rooms, trailer parks, apartments, houses, never had stability. So when I would look back, I felt pride. Um, but the first thing I had before I went on this journey is anger. And I would use anger to motivate me, right? If I look back on my past, I would look back towards the memory, get mad, and I would use that anger to motivate me to go to that next level in my life, to accomplish that next thing in my business, to do that next thing. Um, but the realize, I realized that, that anger was toxic. It was, it would motivate me temporarily, but per, but it long, the long-term effects were not positive. I started becoming more angry, more short-tempered, my fuse began getting shorter and shorter because I was depending on anger as my go-to emotion anytime I needed motivation or. And how did that, how has that limited you? What, what have you learned about that now? I went through a lot of self-destruction in my life. So I've been an entrepreneur since I got out of the army and uh, I've worked a couple jobs. The majority of the time I've ran businesses and every business I've ran had the potential of being something big something extremely successful. And that's what every entrepreneur would tell you. But my problem was every time I'd start to see success, <clears throat> every time I started to see success, I would start, I would, the business would fail. And I had no idea why, because it was like, everything was going great. I was making good money. I had a big team. And then all of a sudden everything starts falling apart. And so after this happening about three or four times, I had to look back and reflect on why. Right. Obviously, it wasn't because of my team. The only person I could be responsible for it failing was myself. And I had to self-reflect and figure out why this keeps happening. And what I realized is subconsciously, I would destroy my businesses, not on purpose. It wasn't a conscious decision, but I would go through self-destruction because I, I began, I became stuck in, as, in a warrior mindset. And what I mean by that is I always felt like I needed to fight. Like, I need to fight to, to live. And if I'm not having to fight, I start to get uncomfortable because that's, I'm not used to that. I'm used to having to fight to survive. It's yes. what my life has been since I was a little child. So when my life begins, begins to get easier and money starts to become easier and life is just more simple, it's like I subconsciously destroy that because I need to feel like I'm always fighting because that's just where I'm comfortable. Mm. You, you said that, you know, when, um, when you reflect on your childhood and you, you've made a very, I think, profound statement that when our parents hurt or disappoint us as children, we remember it forever. The problem is we remember it from the mentality of a child, not the mindset of an adult. What, what do you mean when you say that and, and, and what insights do you get from that? You know, um, 
it was a it was probably my biggest breakthrough of this entire journey right and this happened probably on the third day yeah it happened on the third day of my journey and it was just I kept looking back and every time that we look back to someone that hurt us whether it was two months ago or 20 years ago doesn't matter what matters is how much do we change every day of our life how much do we change every year we are not who we were a year ago something about us as we get older as we have new life experiences our mentality changes right now I'm a father I'm a father to three beautiful children. My mentality now versus who I was at 21 is a whole different thing. I like hanging out and watching movies at my house instead of going out and drinking every night at the bar with my buddies. So what we have, what I realized on my walk was that that's exactly what happened is every time I thought about my mom, I saw her from a child's eyes and it would make me angry because every time I thought about my mom, I thought about everybody else's mom that I've met. Right. Throughout my journey, I interacted with a bunch of different strangers and some of my crew and a lot of the women were older women, probably closer to my mom's age and some even a little older. And every time they, they just had this, they went into what I call full mom mode. They asked me anything to eat. They wanted to feed me. They wanted to give me drinks. They wanted to take care of me. And every time this would happen in my life, all it would do is make me angry and not at that woman, but at my mom, because she never gave me that. And throughout my journey, what I had to realize that I had to stop looking at her as my mommy, as like a five-year-old little boy. And I had to look at her as just a human being who had her issues probably because of things from her own past that I don't know about. Because as children, we look at our, at our parents as superheroes that never experience anything bad, right? We don't really think about their feelings, their emotions, their past. And this journey, I had to reflect on that. And that's how I was able to end up forgiving her was we can't forgive someone that we hate. In order to not hate someone, we have to humanize them. I like to say undemonize them, right? Because we see them as demons in our head if they hurt us. And we can't forgive them until we find a way to look at them as a human being instead of looking at them as that close person in our life that disappointed us or hurt us. So many profound things you've said in there. What do you, after you having gone through that process, and seeing your your mom uh, as a human being, what do you what do you have compassion for, or what what do you appreciate about your mom now that perhaps you certainly didn't, or you were, you were blinded to before? You know what I appreciated was that she always did what she felt was best, whether it was for herself or or anything else. She's she's a survivor, right? And I can have compassion for that because that's what I am. And what I realized is, you know. I said whenever I had to testify against her in court, it was because she asked me to help frame someone else, and then she tried to pin the murder um, on my brother. Not not through courts, but she started trying to talk people into believing that he could have done it. What I realized in that moment is but if I take my emotions out of it, right, if I take my emotions of the fact that that's my brother and she's his mother and she should, and no woman, no mom should ever do that to their son, if I take my emotions out of that, she's a survivor. That's what she is. She was doing anything that she could possibly do to get away, to get away with it, to survive, just like any other human being, right? I think if we remove our emotions and look at human beings of of what they truly are, we're creatures of survival. What we are is we're fight or flight animals. We're either going to run away or we're going to fight. We're no different than a horse. We're no different than a lion. We're no different than a wolf. We are animals. And our first instinct is survive. And that means doing whatever is necessary to survive. 
And so I, the thing that I have compassion for is the fact that she was a survivor. She is a survivor. That's very, very insightful and very, and uh, very, it's incredible of the capacity that you've had to really change your perspective. And as you describe it as the undemonizing, I'm curious about that. Was there a specific process you went through in that process of undemonizing your mother? Was there certain steps you went through or did it tend to happen organically? And, and uh, if someone needed to undemonize someone in their life, what would you suggest they do? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a four step process that I call it, right? The first step is intention right what is your intention why do you want to forgive if we don't understand why if we're just doing it because everybody says that we should you're not going to forgive because that's what everybody says everybody says you just need to forgive and move on and everybody makes it sound so easy and there's nothing simple about forgiveness forgiveness is the most challenging thing i've ever had to do in my life and i've been to war and i've had children forgiveness is still the hardest thing i've ever had to do in my life so it's something you have to have your own intention you have to understand why you need to forgive and how not forgiving is holding you back in your life. And that's something you have to figure out throughout your own thought processes. It's not something that someone else should have to tell you. Um, I, I am a firm believer that I don't need someone to tell me why I need to figure it out on my own. And then the, so the first step is intention. The second step is confrontation, right? And I don't mean confronting just the person, confronting the memories. What we do when we experience traumatic things, whether it's someone that cheated on us, our car accident, combat, um, you know, physical or mental abuse, whatever it is, our first instinct, our human brain instinct is to avoid ever thinking about that moment. We do everything we can. We avoid every sound, every smell, every area, every location, every sight that will bring that memory up. We're, our, our job in our head, our mission is to avoid everything that could bring that memory back to our head. So our job, what we do is we run away, right? What we have to do in order to forgive is you have to confront, you have to confront the memories and not just the bad ones. Because when we go through something traumatic, we play this movie trailer in our head of all the worst possible things that ever happened, like a horror movie, right? Some movie trailers play like comedy movies. They play the funniest scenes. Horror movies play the scariest scenes in our head. We take the horror movie route and all we remember about that person or that circumstance is the worst possible memory. But confronting means we have to confront the good ones too, right? There were times, good times with my mom throughout my childhood. Yes, there were a lot more bad times than there were good times, but there were good ones. But my mind got so focused on the negative, I didn't know, I didn't think about the good times. And we, in order to forgive someone, to de, de undemonize or to humanize someone, we have to find a way to like them at least a little bit, right? Which means we have to remember something positive about that person. And no matter how bad of a person they, they were, there was one moment in your life that you remember. There's got to be one moment that it wasn't horrible, and right? It doesn't say, have to be sorry to interrupt you there. I just, I just want to pick up one yeah. thing you said there. Is you said you got to like the person. And I mean, you have a, such an extreme example there. And there's lots of people listening to this who probably have some some um, grudges that they're holding against someone or some deep hatred against someone. Is it, is it that you have to like someone first or is it more on the lines of uh, appreciation or compassion or just understanding? Is maybe that a place to start? I think if we just start with not hate. Okay. I think if, that, if you can just get to that level, right? You don't have to like them, but you have to not hate them. Um, so you have to feel at least, if you're not gonna, if you're gonna feel some emotion towards them, just make it no emotion, 
instead of hatred, right? Yes. It does not, you don't have to like them, just don't hate them. Feel indifferent towards them. If you feel indifferent towards them, the next thing that will come is compassion. But that comes through thinking, right? It doesn't come naturally. Yes. Um, but I would say not hate. Okay. So so, that's top. Yeah, so getting, getting back to your, your four steps. First step is intention. Second step is confrontation. Third step. Third step is absolution. And that's the hardest one, right? Absolution is absolving them of whatever they've done to you and or absolving yourself of whatever you've done to someone else, right? So forgiveness goes back both ways. It's just as hard as to forgive ourselves as it is to forgive other people. And all of us, I don't care how perfect you are or how much of an angel that you are, we've all hurt someone in our life. Not intentionally, but we've all hurt someone. We've either realized the relationship wasn't going to work out and we left them and that hurt them or we've done something even worse, right? I used to emotionally abuse my wife and I'm not proud of that, but I, I own it because that's who I was. And I did that because of the life that I was raised in because I hated women, women for a very long time because the, a man's first view of women is his mother. And my mother wasn't a great example of what a woman should be. So I emotionally abused my wife. So absolution is about absolving both yourself and the others that have hurt you. Because in order to, to move forward in your life to make a better life, you have to not only forgive those that have hurt you, but if someone has hurt you, you've most likely taken that pain and hurt someone else because of it. And I don't care how many people disagree with that. If, we, if you find a woman who's been cheated on numerous times in her life, she will check her new spouse's or new boyfriend's phone every day to make sure he's not cheating on her, right? And that hurts her boyfriend because he feels like he doesn't deserve that distrust. But she sees it right because she doesn't want to be surprised again. So it hurts him. So I, I believe that that's what we all do. We hurt other people because we've been hurt. That's not right. intentionally, but we do. Yes, the, the old adage of uh, hurt people, hurt people, plays out very true, very true. The... Um... I got a bunch of questions uh, to come back to you, but I just want to, want to let you to finish off the fourth step in the in the forgiveness process: intention, confrontation, absolution. And the fourth step is the last step is transformation, and that is the hardest one out of everything. People think that forgiveness is is the hardest, and it definitely is the hardest I've done so far. But next, next is probably going to be the hardest part of my life, which is transformation, right? And like I said, I've become comfortable in war. I've become comfortable with being miserable. Uh, and I think a lot of us get that way. We get so comfortable with being miserable that we don't know how to be happy. And being happy scares us because we're not sure how, how to do that. We don't know how, how that works. And so we don't know if, it's, if we're capable of it. Just like we get comfortable living in a house and we don't want to move, we get comfortable living in our emotions and we don't want to move. The transformation is allowing yourself to transform into a new person after fully absolving the other people and yourself from all the mistakes that have happened in your past. And that's the step that I'm on in my process now. Well, it's very powerful messaging there, Andrew. And um, the level of clarity that you have is, is definitely inspiring, especially for, I think, for those who are listening to this, who, who've not only had some challenges, but maybe currently are holding on to some, some hatred in some aspect of their life. And, you know, I saw on one of your posts um, that you put on, on social media, there was a response, uh, a comment from another another member of the group, and he he mentioned that he was a first responder on 9/11 uh, at the World Trade Centers, and 
you, you know, he suffered terrible PS, uh, PTSD from it. And he decided that on the 10th anniversary on September 11th, 2011, he did his, he went his first trip back to Manhattan and ground zero. And it was an incredibly emotional day for him. And what he said was he, he had to deal with guilt. He didn't know he had. And when he finally left, he it was such a, uh, an incredible burden that was lifted from him, but he had this guilt as a first responder who wasn't involved in any kind of attack, but he was trying to help people, but he had this incredible guilt. And I understand that's a, that could be a very common, common thing that shows up for someone when someone's been really, really harmed. How did guilt, what role did guilt play for you? And what's your perspective on your own guilt now? Yeah, you know, I mean, guilt was a big emotion I had because I went on stand and testified against my mother for murder where she was found guilty and sentenced to 60 years in prison. So I obviously felt a huge level of guilt towards that. Right. And, and it's because no matter who she was, no matter how she raised me, no matter the circumstances, that's family. She was still my mother. Right. And I've seen people and met people have been through a much worse childhood than I, I went through. So I felt a huge level of guilt. But looking back on that, you know, part of my journey of, of reflecting on all of my life decisions is I realized that all I was doing in that moment was protecting my brother. And the reason I protected my brother is because he protected me my entire life. My brother is two years older than me. My dad wasn't around much when I was a kid. He is now, uh, but he wasn't around much when I was a kid. And so I, he was my only male role model. And so when I saw an opportunity for me to protect the man that had always protected me as a child, I jumped at the opportunity. And so I had to realize that I, while I did feel guilty, I made the right decision. And a lot of people think, they always say, well, you made the right decision, you did the right thing, and they think I did the right thing because I told the truth to the police. And what I tell everybody is that is not why I decided to testify. It wasn't because I felt bad for not telling the police what she had asked me to do. It was because of I wanted to protect my brother, and so when I found out what she was trying to do, I decided to go and tell the truth. So I always want to explain it because I'm always about being fully transparent about everything. Mm. Well, it certainly reinforces a, a belief that I, I have that, you know, certainly behind every, behind every behavior is a positive intent, meaning we're trying to meet our needs in some way. And even sometimes the most heinous behavior and the most criminal behavior, we're trying to meet a need. And, and the way that you described your, you can see, now see your mom was, she was a survivor and there's something that you can respect or you can honor there, even if it was done in a maybe a highly dysfunctional, very unhealthy way and certainly very harmful way to you and others. Um, but to recognize that even what you've done there can, when you testify against your mother, that there was a good intention there. And that is certainly something to hang on to as you're trying to battle out these different perspectives in your own mind. When you, um, I just want to put again for the for the people to, to listening to this, just to put this in context. So, this um, this murder and this trial, your mom was sentenced as of five years ago, roughly. Now, is that right? Yeah, two thousand fourteen. Two thousand fourteen. And so, was there a moment? Was there a moment when you decided to forgive your mother? You know, the first moment when I decided to start and try to forgive her. So I tried to see her in 2015. I did see her in 2015 while she was in prison. Um, I went to forgive her, but I ended up not having the courage to do it. And the reason that I went 
through that, the reason I went to go see her in 2015 and it didn't work out for me is what led into that was we, my wife and I had separated and we were going through a child custody battle. And every time I would emotionally abuse my wife, I would tell myself that I had a right to do it. I would give myself permission. I would say, well, she knew she shouldn't have said that. She knew that that was the button of mine. She deserved to be talked to that way. And when I talk about emotionally abused, I want to make that clear. What I would do is I would call her every name that you could possibly think of. Think of the most offense, offensive name that you can call a woman. I've said it to her numerous times. I told her to get in the kitchen and make me a sandwich like women are supposed to do. I said some of the most mean and hateful things to this woman. And so, but in the moments that I would say it, I would black out. I wouldn't know what I was saying. Now, I never physically touched her. I didn't abuse her physically. I just, uh, but I did abuse her emotionally. And, but I didn't remember saying these things because I would black out. And what would happen is she would say something that sounded similar to something my mom had said as a child. And I would black out and feel as though I'm talking to my mom and not to her. And whenever we went to court for the custody battle, she had recorded me at one time. I didn't know she recorded me. And they played the audio recording in the courtroom. And I just hung my head in shame. I couldn't even lift my head off of the desk. I was so ashamed of myself because I didn't know who that monster was on that recording. It sounded like me, had my voice, but that wasn't me. I was so proud of myself before then. I so proud of myself for being a survivor, for being tough, for being hardcore. And then I realized that I had just become a mean human. And uh, it was in that moment that I decided to go and see my mom. But at that time, four years ago, I wasn't quite ready for it. I wasn't ready to forgive like I thought I was. I was just trying to do something to make myself better. Now, since 2015, slowly, I've become a better person. Now, I don't ever call my wife any names. I respect her more than anything before. I treat her like my queen now. And it's because she stuck around and she stuck through all this with me and she held on even when she shouldn't have. And I'm a much better person now. But that's what led into me wanting to forgive is realizing how much it was damaging my life and how I was about to lose my family because of it. Powerful motivation there. And when you decided to go on this journey, you decided to walk a hundred miles. Why not just jump in a car or why not get on, get on Skype and talk to your mom that way? Why did you decide to walk a hundred miles and take five days of walking across the, the Texas summer heat to do that? Why was that your approach? You know, the big, that's like the main question everybody asks me, right? And the biggest thing I say is if it was one instance, one experience, I probably wouldn't have had to do it that way. I probably could have done it in a car ride. I probably could have done it, you know, with sitting outside in some meditation. But this was a lifetime full of pain and suffering and memories and hatred. And so when you go through a lifetime like I have, when you go through a childhood like I have or worse, you can't just simply drive somewhere and go forgive someone. Um, and I could have done that, but the words would have meant the same thing that the words would have meant in 2015. Nothing. Saying the words I forgive you means nothing if there's no emotion behind it, if there's no feeling behind it. It's just words. It's just empty words. So I had to go on a journey of self-reflection. So I decided to walk, right? I made it 80 of the 100 miles and my ankle swole up and I couldn't finish. Um, I made it to the jail. I just couldn't finish walking. I ended up having to get a ride to the hotel because my ankle was too swollen. But those 80 miles was the most 
amazing moments of my life, the most painful, both mentally and physically, but the most um, freeing as well. And what I realized is I had to unplug. I had to get away from technology. I had to get away from busyness. I spent every night in a campsite. I carry my bag. Um, my bag, actually, I carried my bag for the first eight miles. Then I realized I'm not going to be able to make it a hundred miles with a 70 pound bag on my back. Um, so threw it in the car, but walked the rest of the way and I would camp out every night. And I, I had originally thought about going to hotels and staying at a hotel every night. But then I realized that's not going to give me time, right? When you're walking, you don't really have time to reflect because you're setting goals. All right. I need to get to that spot over there. Then I'll check my phone to see how much further I got to go. And it's just, especially when you walk the amount of miles I did in the short time that I did. So what I, my only time of true self-reflection of my best self-reflection was at the end of the day, physically exhausted. And I want to be, I wanted to be physically exhausted because if I'm physically exhausted, I don't have the energy to fight off my emotions. If I have physical energy, I will fight off my emotions. I've only felt two emotions in my life. It's either happy or angry. That's it. I've never felt anything else. Depression, sadness, anxiety, none of that. Never felt anything else besides happy or angry. So in order for me to welcome in all the emotions that I need to welcome in in order to truly forgive, I need to be physically exhausted. What were the emotions that you welcomed in and what was that experience for you? I cried. I cried for the first time in a very, very, very long time. I am not a crier. Um, I think I cried all my tears as a child. And I honestly had thought my tear ducts had dried up. Um, but I cried on this, on this journey. And I, I welcomed the tears and because I knew I needed to. I knew I needed to cry, but I could never get myself to. Um, I allowed myself to feel com- compassion towards my mom. If I have energy, all I'm going to do is feel anger. Because that's what I feed off of. That's what my physical energy would feed off of is the anger. And so uh, I felt compassion. I felt, I felt anger for the first two days. Uh, then I felt compassion. I felt sadness. I felt joy. I felt happiness. I felt everything. It was a roller coaster of emotions. And when you, look, when you reflect back on that, you mentioned you, know, you only experienced two things, happy or angry. And suddenly you experienced all these other emotions as you experience those newer new emotions, can you um, did it make you realize that you have experienced those things before, or is that truly a kind of a black hole in your history where the, none of those other emotions showed up? Oh no! When I was a kid, I I was extremely emotional, so I mm. cried all the time as a kid. Um, so it felt good to feel the, those emotions again because, to be honest, I started to hate myself. And I hated myself because I felt like I wasn't human. I felt like I wasn't normal because I never felt everything else that everyone else felt. I never felt sadness or, or depressed or really any other emotion. So I never felt like I could connect with other humans. And after being able to experience those emotions, it felt freeing. It felt like a weight had been lifted off my chest. I felt normal. Yes. And we'll get to the actual visit with your mom in a second, but over those four or five days of walking, walking all day, what surprised you? What surprised you about that part of your journey? What surprised me was I was able to actually do it. Like I didn't quit because I was, I had pain in my muscles or because of blisters. I literally had a sprained ankle that was full up to the size of like a tennis ball. Um, but outside of that, like I made it, I, 
I accomplished what I was meaning to accomplish. And I finished 80 miles with no training before. I didn't train for this. I made a decision and I just did it. I did it about two weeks after I decided I was going to do it. I didn't, I didn't train for it at all. I had done no, no physical conditioning or anything. And it was just because I had the mental capacity. I had the, the drive because I had an end goal in mind. And the biggest moments throughout my walk that surprised me was the moment that I, um, I was sitting down with the camera and this is going to be in the documentary, but I sat down with the camera and I said something that I never thought I would say in my life. And it was uh, during my burning ceremony. I did a burning ceremony where I wrote down everything I felt, every memory that I was experiencing, and I threw it in the fire. And it was my way of getting rid of that memory. Not, I'm never going to forget my past, but it was, it was getting rid of the emotions tied into that, mm. right? So anger, hatred towards women, the time that she wasn't there for this or that. I wrote down those memories and threw it in the fire. And afterwards, I was talking to my crew and they were interviewing me. And I said something. And the, what I said was, you know what? For the first time in my life, yes, I want to forgive her for me. I'm doing this for me. But I hope that when I forgive her, if she feels any guilt, it frees her from that guilt. And that, after I said it, I even said on the camera, I was like, wow, I can't believe I just said that. I was never expecting that. I thought I was going to forgive her, but keep her out of my life, never talk to her again. That was my goal. Um, but throughout the journey, I realized that I wanted her to not feel pain for the first time in my life. The rest of my life, I've always wanted her to hurt. I've always wanted her to feel what she's made me feel. And it was the first time I felt opposite of that. Was there part of you that you were looking to or hoping to, or expecting to forgive yourself for as well? Yeah. I mean, I had to forgive myself for the way I treated my wife, you know, and because we're still together to this day and she's stuck in there. And um, I try all the time to, you know, earn her trust back. And um, obviously she still has issues because of the things that I've done. So I had to forgive myself, you know, and, and forgive myself for the things that I said with the understanding that those things will never come out of my mouth again and the circumstances will never happen again. Um, and it's been four years since they have, but I had to finally forgive myself as well. So when you finally had a chance to sit down with your mom in that prison, how did that meeting go in reality compared to the expectations or anticipation you had? Yeah. So I expected her to, I expected to go in there, me say what I needed to say as far as I forgive you. And I, I had planned out how I was going to say it. I was going to say, I forgive you for everything from my childhood up to the murder trial. I just want you to know that I, I forgive you. And that was it. That was all I was going to say. At first, I wanted to say, like, I forgive you for this circumstance and that circumstance. And then I thought, you know what? There's no reason for me to go ahead and build out a list of the things and read it out to her. I just need to forgive her and say those simple words. As, because while they're simple, they're powerful, especially because I would mean it. And so, but I expected her response to be about blaming me or blaming the world. She never took responsibility for herself or her own actions in her entire life. It was always someone else's fault. So that's what, that's what I expected. I was prepared for that response. It was the exact opposite. So I walk in, she comes in uh, from the prison, we sit down, we're talking, and I tell her what I had done. I said, look, I just walked 80 miles to get here and see you. Uh, because I needed to forgive you because I have, I held so much anger and hatred towards you as my mother because of everything from my past. And I want you to know that 
I forgive you. And I even said something else that surprised me. I said, and I wanted to tell you that I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry that I've blamed you my entire life. I'm sorry that I've used you as an excuse to treat people like crap. I'm sorry for the fact that I've allowed my childhood to have such a negative impact on my life. And I'm sorry that I've blamed you for that instead of being a, a, a man and taking responsibility for myself. And her response to that was, don't ever say sorry to me. And then she said, I'm so glad that you forgive me. I want you to know that I am so sorry. And she said, so sorry for every instance that I remembered on my walk. She brought him up. I didn't. But she literally listed out everything and said, I'm sorry for this. And I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry I didn't do this. I'm sorry I depended on men. I'm sorry that I let greed take over. I'm sorry that I slept with your best friend. I'm sorry I did that. Like she listed everything. And it was so powerful um, because it was not at all what I was expecting. And what was the powerful, what was so powerful for you? By the end of that, we, after she had apologized for everything, we decided we were going to continue. Uh, we just kept talking. I, I spent the whole two hours that they allow you to visit and we just caught up. And at the end of it, I decided that I wanted to try and have a relationship with her. Um, not, I'm going to be cautious, of course, right? We always have to be cautious about that, but I'm going to try to have a relationship with her. And, and she asked if she can make things for my kids, like crafts and stuff. And I told her, of course, and actually in two months, I'm probably going to go and visit her with my children so that they can finally meet their grandma. Um, which is not at all how I expected any of this to end. What do you hope to get out of a relationship with your mom? And why, why do you want to have a relationship with someone who, who did harm you so, so much? The reason, the best, the biggest reason I'm able to look at her the way I am now is because of the walk. When I went through the walk, I thought about myself and I thought about the horrible things that I did to my wife and the horrible things that I said to her. And all I thought about is all I want from her is her forgiveness. And I will never do those things again. Right. But how can I sit there and ask for someone else to forgive me for the things I've done if I can't do the same for the person that did them to me? So that was why it was because I made horrible decisions as well. Maybe not as bad, definitely not as bad, but I made horrible decisions as well. And I feel like I deserve forgiveness because I want it. And so if I'm going to expect that I should be able to give it as well. Has your wife forgiven you for how you treated her? She's forgiven me, but she still has a lot to process. Yeah. Um, I told when I came back from my journey, I asked her when she's going to go on hers. So we're planning out her journey now. I'll stay at home and watch the kids. And she rides horses. We live out in the country and have horses. And so she rides horses. So she's going to get the horse. Um, she's going to go out and, on some camping trails where they allow horse riding. And she's going to spend a few days and trail ride with her horse and get away from the kids and technology and process what she needs to process. Because while she has forgiven me, uh, obviously there's still a lot of memories that she holds on to and things that still affect us to this day. And I want her to go through her journey. And how has this, how has this journey in, in this act of forgiveness, the journey to forgiveness with your mom, how has it impacted other people in your life? Like your, your brother or your kids or your friends? Has, have you seen a ripple effect or have you had some pushback? I have. So I, um, I was, as a father, I love my kids. I kiss them about 20 times a day. I've always been a very, very loving father. But I've also been a very short and a very strict father. I don't beat my kids, but I've, I've always yelled at them and gotten very strict and stern with them 
Um, and I, I had very short patience with them. And since I've been back, it's completely changed. And my, my kids have noticed it. So I've got a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and a 10-year-old. And my five and my two-year-old, she's two. <laughs> so that's all I have to say to explain that one. Um, you know, she's got the toddler tantrums and everything. And I've done a lot better instead of yelling at her when she does her tantrums. I'm able to calm her down and have a conversation with her and tell her, look, that's not okay. We don't do that. When the, you know, before I went on my walk, I would just yell and she would stop, but I would yell. And what, would ha- what was happening is my kids started to, to fear me, not respect me. And I didn't want that. I didn't want my own children to fear me. And then my 10-year-old actually went to me, came to me last night, and um, she watched the, the teaser trailer for the documentary. And she said, Daddy, I want you to know that I've seen such a big difference in you since you've came back. You haven't yelled at me. You're a lot nicer. Uh, I'm so glad that you went and did that. And so that wow. was really meaningful to hear that from my own 10-year-old daughter. Wow. What do you hope your kids will learn about emotions or about forgiveness? Well, what the, we've had that conversation quite a bit this past week since I've been back. That all we talk in our house, we talk about everything that we feel, even if it's going to hurt someone's feelings. My 10 year old has told me that she hates me. Um, and we've, I sat down and had that conversation with her. And I let her say the things that she needs to say to get it off of her chest in the most realistic way possible. I, I don't tell her to filter anything. I want my family to always communicate about how they feel because. Well, we're realizing in today's day and age, families are becoming less and less connected. Most families, you know, have some kind of issue in their family where someone won't be in the house if someone else is there. Um, You know, no more family reunions. It's hard to get everybody together for Christmas and holidays. And I want my family to be different. I want to break that cycle. So we teach them to talk about the emotions. And then, you know, it's important for my kids to also understand what forgiveness means and how important it is. Well, for ourselves and for everybody else. And I think every woman that ever listens to this episode needs to learn to forgive themselves because they are the meanest person to themselves than anyone else in this world. Women hate on themselves so much. Um, And I wanna make sure that my girls don't do that. I don't want them looking in the mirror and talking down to themselves and saying hateful things to themselves. I want them looking in the mirror and being proud of the person looking back at them. Mm. You've done a, a lot of work on yourself, obviously, and you've done a lot, a lot of work to be proud of as you, you've uh, traveled the world, you've spoken to groups, you've speak at a lot of military bases. Uh, what's the message that you want to convey to those groups you speak with? And, and what are the common questions or what are the themes of the questions that you tend to hear the most from either deployed soldiers or parents of deployed soldiers? You know, the message that I share is that forgiveness is possible. And if we don't forgive, we're never going to move forward. And it's the biggest thing I talk about is anger, because anger is our natural first instinct. We want to be mad at someone. When we're mad at someone, it helps us overcome our adversities, the people that have hurt us. We use that anger as motivation, but anger has its place. Anger is a, it's okay to have that emotion, but it's not okay to depend on that emotion, to solely depend on that emotion. To get us through life because all that does is cause a ripple effect of damage on everything else from the businesses we start the careers we get into our children our wives our husbands whoever it, it damages everything and then the biggest question that i get when it comes to soldiers and you know it's not really questions when it comes to the soldiers um the thing i hear most is 
they they come and share their story with me. And the reason they do that is because right now, no one tells the truth. No one talks about how they feel. When we're on social media, no one talks about how much their kids are driving them crazy or how dirty their house is or how tight they are on bills this month. Everybody makes their life look like it's amazing. Everybody's life on social media is a movie trailer of highlights of all these awesome pictures on Instagram and selfies and smiling when in reality, they're probably yelling at each other before they you know, did that selfie real quick and they told the kids to smile. And so when, when you finally go and you, you're honest with someone, you're fully transparent, you're vulnerable, and you share the most deep, intimate issues of your life, all it does is it gives them permission to share it back with you. And I love it. I will speak to theaters. I've spoken to a, a, a crowd of 8,000 soldiers at one time. And I spent the rest of the day, I don't leave my speaking engagement until every last person has talked to me. And so I spent the entire day just talking. I had a line going out of the theater um, waiting to talk to me. For people who maybe um, have a relationship or are connected to people who maybe gone through some challenging times, but they haven't experienced them themselves, what, do you, what would you wish that people understood about going through trauma or going through some very intense experiences, whether it's, you know, exactly like yours or something of similar intensity. What do you wish that people understood? I wish they would understand why we make the decisions that we make and why we react the way we react. It doesn't give us an excuse. It doesn't make it okay. But empathy, empathy is so important. And I feel like it's hard for people to be empathetic because someone that's been hurt is going to hurt you, especially if you are the one that's close to them. Because that's just their reaction. They're, they're going to hurt you before you have an opportunity to hurt them. And instead of being mean, instead of getting mad at them, if you just love on them and just continue to prove yourself to them over and over and over again, eventually they're going to get to the point where they have to forget. Now, a lot of people won't. And it's okay to take care of yourself first. And if you realize that nothing's ever going to change, then you're going to have to leave for your own well-being so you don't end up with trauma that ends up affecting your future relationship. But the biggest thing I wish that people would understand is empathy. Don't look at the person that's trying to hurt you. Think about why. Why, instead of getting mad at them for what they're doing, think about why are they doing that? Why are they responding that way? Why are they reacting that way? Get to the cause of it instead of just getting angry about it. And what, uh, I think that's bang on. I think it's absolutely bang on. It's a, often easier said than done, especially when it's an emotionally charged situation. But when you start to see people for the innocence that they 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 have, that the um, the intent positive intention that's underneath there somewhere to meet some sort of a need, and as you said, many times those negative emotions and negative negative um, you know things like anger or irritation and whatever whatnot, they really are trying to protect yourself. And when you start to see that someone is really just trying to protect themselves, then it can really can make you can can transform. To back to your last point, you can really transform how you see that person how you understand that person it's also extremely important to understand that if you're in a relationship with someone that's been through trauma and they're not going to get better you also have to protect yourself right you don't want to put yourself through trauma as well and end up being becoming just like that yeah what do, what do you say to someone who wants to forgive they, they there's a part of them that really wants to forgive but there's another part of them that just doesn't think it's possible I didn't think it was possible either. I honestly did not. Um, what I say is it's got to be something that you're intentionally trying to do. You consciously think about, you consciously work towards, 
and it's a day-by-day experience, right? It wasn't, I didn't just forgive her in five days. This, I did a lot of prep two weeks before I even went on my walk. Every day, I'm changing something about my life, whether it's physical health, mental health. Every day, something is changing. Uh, so, you know, I had one day, I had to just focus, spend the entire day just to find that one positive memory with my mom so I could, you know, undemonize her, so I could humanize her. Um, it, that took an entire day of, of meditation, of looking out into the open. Uh, you know, I live on 18 acres, so I'll sit on my porch and just look out into the wild and think. And I'll just look into my pasture and, and think and try to search and find. Forgiveness is not going to happen organically, and it's not going to happen if you don't try. Uh, and if you don't try, then yes, you're, true, you're right. Forgiveness is impossible if you don't try. That's uh, uh, so wise. So wise. You also talk to groups. Um, what have you learned from speaking with and talking to parents and families affected by suicide? You, I know you've used your own story to maybe help raise awareness or, or just help, help provide some perspective to others. What have you learned from talking to those groups and, and people who've also been affected? What you have to understand is that when it comes to suicide, it's not because they're trying to hurt someone else. It's because they don't want to hurt anymore. They've been through so much pain, most of the time emotional pain, that they just don't want to go through the pain anymore. So they want to end their life. So it's important to understand why someone wants to make that decision instead of getting angry at them for wanting to make that decision. Because again, our first instinct is anger. We want to get mad at them. Why would you even think about leaving me? Why would you think about doing that to the kids? Why would you think about doing that to your mom or your dad? How selfish could you be to make that decision? That's our first instinct. And again, what we have to do is get out of our emotions and think the way they think, understand the way they feel, and understand that they're just in so much pain they don't want to live anymore because the pain is too much. What we also have to understand for those of us going through those emotions, the majority of the time we want to commit suicide is because we don't feel loved. And a huge breakthrough that I had in my journey is that I was surrounded by love yet never felt it. And the reason I never felt it is because I was so focused on the one person I wanted to feel love with, I ignored everybody else that was giving it to me. Because, I, again, I only focused on the one negative, right? I only focused on the fact that my mom won't give me the love and, and attention and affection that I want. And so I would just focus on that and think, no one loves me. No one's ever going to love me. When in reality, I'm surrounded by love with my children, you know, the mother of my children, my dad, my brothers. I, I have love in my life, but I didn't see it because I was so focused on the one person I didn't get it from. A lot of suicides come from relationships. Someone feels disappointed, someone was cheated on, someone was left or broken up with or divorced, and that leads into suicide. What we have to remember is just because that one person isn't giving us the love or the affection that we desire, there are so many people surrounding us that have that. It's so important to understand that. And it's important to understand the effect of suicide because your one death can affect hundreds of lives. Yeah, I've had, um, I've had five people in my life, friends or, or um, friends or family members of friends who've committed suicide in my, in my life. And just recently had a, a friend uh, have a very close, most close friend of his take her life. What, what advice or perspective could you offer up to someone who maybe, you know, um, did does lose someone from suicide and maybe feels somewhat 
guilty or responsible, or maybe they could have done something more, should have done something more. Well, every situation is going to be different. What, what perspective would you encourage that person who's, who feels guilty or like they should have done something more? What perspective do you bring to them? You know, the biggest thing I would bring to them is, is forgiveness. And not, not forgiving yourself because I don't feel like you have anything to forgive yourself for. Um, and if you do feel like you have something to forgive yourself for, then do that. But forgive them. Forgive them for, uh, for committing suicide and get, come to peace with that. Grieve the loss of them, but don't grieve the loss of suicide. Just grieve the loss of, of them passing away. Uh, it's extremely important not to blame ourselves for the actions of other people. And I know as much as just hasn't done because it took 100 miles for me to realize that um, because I blamed myself. I blame myself for not being able to be loved. I blame myself for my mom not loving me. I blame myself for the fact that my life is the way it is. And I blame myself over and over again for everything until this journey. And what I realized is when you're able to forgive that person, because there's a part of you that's angry at them, no matter how much you love them, it's the part of you that's angry at them for making that decision, for making that decision to leave, especially for making that decision to leave you instead of calling you or asking for help or seeking help. They made a decision that was permanent, and now it's affecting you, so you're going to hold anger towards them. I think once you forgive them, you, you'll feel less guilt. It's just hard to forgive them, but you have to. You have to find a way to do it. You have to go through a journey of forgiving them for leaving you and forgiving them for putting you through what you're going through and, and stop putting it all on yourself. Yes, I think that's bang on. That's great. Great perspective. And Andrea, I, I again, have um, utmost respect and appreciation for you and your sharing your journey and sharing your insights and, and being a role model for making your future better than your past. So what's, what's next? I know you're still processing a lot of this right now, and it's just been a couple of days, I guess, maybe a week since you had that sit down with your mom. What's next for Andrew? What's next for Andrew and his journey of life? Yeah, so I've got a big world tour coming up. Um, I'm going to be speaking at all the army bases in Italy, speaking in Germany and Belgium, speaking in South Korea, speaking in San Antonio. Um, so i got a big military tour coming up which is going to be about, you know, sharing my message, my story, giving hope and, uh, you know, teaching on overcoming adversity and, and forgiveness uh, to military members. And along with that, we got our documentary that's going to go live as soon as we fund it. Um, we've got a crowdfund going on right now for that to try and bring in more donations and uh, pay the film company so that they can make it into, we want it to be a feature length documentary, which means not a 30 minute one, because, 30 minutes isn't enough for everything that happened over those five days. Um, we want to make it a longer documentary. We want it to be a uh, feature on Amazon and Netflix and Hulu. So we have to make sure it's high quality and high quality is not cheap. So we're working on crowdfunding now. And we'll make sure we've got the, uh, the link to that crowdfunding for people to support that in our show notes of this podcast as well. I appreciate that. You mentioned, um, you mentioned a few moments ago, you mentioned mental health. You know, certainly in our culture, and I can speak from a North American perspective, but it's probably largely global as well. There's certainly a long way to go to destigmatize mental health, especially uh, with men. And um, and I guess the question is, 
what do you think that we as a culture could be doing differently? Maybe an education system. How do we how do we start to destigmatize mental health, make it more approachable, and make people feel more comfortable or safe sharing what's going on for them? I think we need to make it like make it look at it just the same way we look at physical health, right? When we look at a at a man who's buff, big muscles, like you know, he takes good care of himself. You know, he goes to the gym. You know, he works out. When we talk, we don't talk about mental health, right? But it should be the same. We should be exercising our mind just as much as we're exercising our body, and we should look at mental health the same way we look at physical health. We should talk people and and we should educate people into taking better care of their mind. But the reason we don't is because you can't see the mind. You can see the biceps, you can see the chest, you can see the calves, but you can't see the brain. And so we focus on the exterior. What do other people think about us? What do they see when they look at us? But we don't think about what do they see? What do they hear when they talk to us? Right? So if we look at some of the biggest influencers out there, they're not influencers because they're big and muscular. The majority of people, if you look at Elon Musk, he doesn't have big muscles. So that dude is changing the world. You look at Tony Robbins, big, tall guy, but he's not a big buff guy. He doesn't have a six pack. Um, you know, we look at these big names that are changing the world and we realize they are taking care of themselves mentally. Um, and so I think that's what we have to do. Start looking at mental health the same way we look at going to the gym. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think there's, there's a long road to go. I know certain, certain communities, certain uh, areas are doing, doing some effort there. What do you what do you think about um, if there's a again I'll just skew it towards the men right now but it certainly would apply for the women I guess as well if someone is going through some some challenges some mental health challenges and they're feeling really hesitant to to get help or to seek help what advice what direct message would you give to them direct message to them would be if you don't change it now it's only going to get worse if you had cancer you would go and start getting treated immediately because you want to live. You had any other kind of disease, physical health disease, you would be treating it with medicine. We would be treating it with doctors. But you start looking at your brain and you think it's weak. It's not weak to get help. There's nothing weak about it. I almost lost my life because I didn't get the help that I needed. But it's also important to understand that sometimes there's help that depends too much on medication. And I don't I have a personal belief that medication is overrated. I believe that the true health can come from exercising your mind through conversations with coaches, consultants, counselors, but I don't believe that you need a pill. There's no magical pill that's going to make you happy again, no matter what you do. And if, if there is, it will make you happy, but you have to take that pill the rest of your life. Your brain is strong. You just don't realize it because you've never taken it to the gym. You've never had to do bench presses. You've never had to do curls. Your brain is strong, but if you don't exercise it, if you don't use it, it's going to be weak. I love it. I love it. Before I ask the final question, Andrew, where can people learn more about your journey and get in touch with you? Yeah, y'all can find me at thiscrazyjourney.com. Thiscrazyjourney.com. All right, we'll have the, we'll have the link in the show notes for sure. The, the final question, Andrew, what do you hope to ignite in the world? I hope to ignite forgiveness around the world, everywhere. So I'm working right now on trying to get, uh, I'm going to do a speaking tour in Texas for all the prisons because I want to teach the inmates about forgiveness because most of them are probably in there because of bad decisions that happened prior to the 
their bad decision that led into that, right? We can all tie into someone in our past leading into some bad decision that we made in our future. So I want to ignite forgiveness. I want to ignite forgiveness for everyone, no matter how serious the crime, no matter what they did, if they deserve it. Um, and what I mean by if they deserve it is everybody should forgive someone that hurt you or you'll never move forward in your life. But I think it's also important to understand that we can maintain relationships with people if they're willing and able to become a better person, if they're trying to become a better person. We need to stop looking at people who made one mistake, one bad decision, no matter how serious that mistake or bad decision was, as a horrible person. They're not horrible people. They made bad decisions probably because of something that happened in their past. And if they're, if they're willing to work on that, we should be willing to allow them that opportunity. Well, I appreciate you, Andrew, for sharing all those thoughts in your story. And uh, I appreciate you for wanting to be a better man and a better person, a better husband and a father. And thank you for being a role model to so many people out there to help them to overcome their past. I think you're, while it's an extreme situation that you've been through, I think a lot of people can learn from that. I know that someone listening to this today needed to listen to this today, needed to hear your, the message. So thank you for your time. Thank you for being you. And, um, and I wish you all the best in your journey forward. And thank you for having me on. That was Andrew O'Brien. What an incredible story. You can find all the links in our show notes. We want to make sure you get the most of the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learned. And most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect. That's theignitionshow.com connect. And let us know what struck you. And what was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group, The Ignition Show, and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments and follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, that's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review on iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And remember, whatever you dream of, Whatever you hope for and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.